Hello, and welcome to another episode of All for Nature. I'm your host, Michelle Bonebreak, and I'm an outdoor educator here at Shaw Nature Reserve. Okay, listeners, I'll get right to it. This is the second episode of a three-part series all about the use of fire as a land management tool. In our last episode, we talked with Mike Saxton and Calvin Maginel about the science of fire and the history of fire on the landscape. In today's episode, our discussion continues, so if you haven't already listened to episode 5, I'd encourage you to go back and give it a listen first, because Mike and Cal do an amazing job of laying the groundwork for what you're about to hear. As for this episode, today we narrow our focus to a discussion of fire at the Nature Reserve. We'll hear how the Nature Reserve has used fire in the past and how and why we continue to use fire today. Along the way, we'll talk through preparations our crews make before a burn and learn more about what burn day looks like for the staff and volunteers working on the fire crews during a burn. Let's rejoin the discussion we started in our previous episode. Thank you for being with us as we present Making Friends with Fire, Part 2, Burning for Biodiversity. Okay, we've dabbled a little bit in science and a little bit in history, and we've got a big picture view, I think, of fire and, and its impacts over time. So let's narrow in now on the prescribed fire program here at the nature reserve. So what is, let's just start with the history. What's the history of using prescribed fire here at the nature reserve? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. So uh, as early as 1937, our staff uh, here at the nature reserve was using fire. Uh, in this case, it was down in what we call the airstrip, right? So think the, uh, the big long field at the bottom of barn and quarry road, if you're going kind of in the vicinity of the, of the uh, gravel bar, right? So it's this big field, and they said we are going to turn to our turn to our old enemy fire, and we want to use fire to see if we can't uh, promote the growth of cup plant, right, a native plant, and we want to uh, see if we can't control some of the growth of giant ragweed. So they were using fire in 1937 in the airstrip to manage the vegetation. Curiously enough, both of those plants still occur in high abundance in the airstrip. We have a lot of cup plants, so that worked, but we also have a lot of giant ragweed, so that did not work. Um, but you know, one of the things we have to think about is this was an arboretum for uh, most of the life of uh, since 1925. Most of um, the garden's time here on this land has been as an arboretum. And so that means they've got collections and uh, displays and curated, uh, marked, cataloged, uh, woody collections, right? So they were deathly afraid of fire getting into some of these grassy fields where there were just rows upon rows of crab apples, rows upon rows of various, uh, evergreen trees. So in 1942, uh, the staff installed six telephone boxes along uh, you know, the, the three mile long loop road. So telephone poles with the box so that you could call if you saw a fire. And in 1945, they actually bought their own fire engine for the specific purpose, for the point of having fire suppression on, on the ground. If some of the, the lakes that were, that were um, an example, the Pinetum, right? Cypress Lake, right at the front of the nature reserve. Um, they, they dug that lake almost immediately in 1926, uh, right after the, the uh, founding of the Gray Summit Extension in 1925. And they dug that lake for the dual purpose of they needed to be able to irrigate 
the the newly planted pinetum, but they also wanted it there for fire suppression. There used to be a uh, like a five hundred thousand gallon cistern right by the trail house. Uh, same thing. They said we need this to water plants, but we also need this to do fire suppression. Hmm. Yeah, and in, in nineteen fifty two, the staff um, the staff said we use fire as a tool to maintain prairie flora. So they had this understanding that in order to, to keep and maintain the prairie flora that we have, we need to use fire uh, to maintain those prairies. And I think what's worth pointing out is there's a publication from 1951 by uh, then director of the Nature Reserve, August Bielman, and a longtime staff member, Lou Brenner. Um, it was called The Recent Intrusion of Forests in the Ozarks. And so what they were arguing in this 1951 paper is that what we see in the Ozarks today is not true to the long-term history from an ecological standpoint. They're, they're arguing in 1951 that the Ozarks are completely, in most of Missouri, is a fire-adapted, fire-maintained community. The trees and the forests that we see are because of removal of fire from the landscape. And that what was here would have been much more open and park-like, um, fewer trees, more spaced out, trees that were getting top-killed, you know, hit by fire and re-sprouting. And... And they were they were panned really like people did not like they they disagreed with them uh, they uh, they were challenged on on this paper and you know we have the benefit of of hindsight being able to look back and and they were it was it was a very prescient paper I mean they were ahead of the curve in 1951 identifying how the landscape had changed so greatly uh, because of the absence of fire they were very much ahead of their time really uh, the the use of fire from our kind of more current um, ecological restoration program really started in, in 1980, right? So in 1979, we planted our first prairie. They started burning that prairie uh, th its first year, right? So fire has been here at the Nature Reserve as a uh, biodiversity management tool in our kind of more modern understanding since uh, 1980. So we're going on 43 years of, of safe and effective fire. Um, in the mid-90s is when we first started burning our woodland communities. And it's interesting because even as as recent as the mid-1990s, it was still quite controversial to be putting fire in woodland communities. People had said, okay, sure, I get it. Fire in prairies is, is good. I'll accept that. But it was it was not an accepted management practice, widely accepted management practice uh, in, in the early to mid-90s. So our the longest, uh, if you think about the woodlands by the trailhouse, a lot of the listeners who know the Nature Reserve will be familiar with those woodlands. They're quite open. They're full of flowers. They look kind of uh, uh, aesthetically pleasing, right? And that's because they've been getting fire about just about every three years for the last 30 years. Fascinating. All right. Anything to add, Cal? Uh, mostly just the hearkening back to the beginning of, of humanity as we descended from our trees somewhere in Africa. We humans very much like large trees and open underneath. And one of the main basic reasons for that is we have really good eyesight, relatively poor hearing and terrible senses of smell compared to everything else. Those are like our two front facing eyes, great with depth perception, great with color comparatively to, to other animals. Uh, we, we very much rely on our eyesight and therefore we also like visual openness, but we like trees because they feel safe. And so we create this today in our parks. You go to any park in any city and guess what you see? Big trees and nice open underneath. And we love to sit on our little blankets and have a little picnic under them. We feel safe, right? That's what fire did for 
humans before we had lawnmowers and <laughs> weed killer so that we didn't have to be near dandelions and stuff. That that was just, that was the tool to do that. Um, and places that you visit, like the nature reserve that utilize fire repeatedly in woodlands, create that setting and, and people do appreciate it. When you walk through people, often visitors are like, wow, it's so pretty here. I'm like, really, the only thing we did was burn it. Uh, that's that's a really interesting evolutionary perspective. Thank you. I hadn't heard that before, so that's really cool. All right, so naturally, anytime you're dealing with fire, it takes significant planning and preparation in order to lessen impacts on surrounding communities, places you don't want the fire to be, um, and also to make sure the nature reserve is conducting burns as safely as possible and in ways that align with our goals for the ecosystems that are being affected by those burns. And again, for clarification for our listeners, we are talking about prescribed burns that are controlled as much as possible in order to lessen any negative impacts an uncontrolled fire has on communities, infrastructure, etc. But the idea of controlling the behavior of fire is an idea that's new for a lot of our listeners. And one example that I hear over and over again is when school groups visit the nature reserve, we'll show them photos of recent burns at the nature reserve. And they're always amazed, especially um, that that prairie near the DBOC, the Dana Brown Overnight Center, um, that was burned, I think, in January-ish of this past year. And so we have photos of that where you have this blackened landscape, the prairie is burned to black. But there's a green trail going down through it, the trail that the students use every day. And they look at it and they're just like, what? How did you keep that from burning? So I think um, it's such a stark contrast and people always want to understand more about how the fire crews manage fire in this way and prevent it from becoming one of those catastrophic fires we see on the news. So in addition to removing the fuels from the understore and the things like that that can kind of cause things to go boom, what are some of the other tactics that you use to help keep things where they're supposed to be. Yeah, so a few of the main variables that we're worried about is uh, we're thinking about the fuels, right? Uh, Are we burning grass or are we burning leaves, right? Two very different fuel types. Uh, We're thinking about the weather, right? We're not just thinking about the weather day of, we're thinking about the weather two and three days out. Um, And we're thinking about kind of our fire breaks, you know, the the natural things like uh, rivers and creeks and the kind of unnatural man-made things like uh, roads and lawns that we can that can help us do these uh, that can help us execute these fires, and we're thinking about what resources we have to deploy, right? So, what kind of how many people do we have? What kind of equipment do we have? So, taken together, um, you know, we're burning under mild conditions typically, right? So, we're choosing the day in which we put fire on the landscape. We are not burning when the humidities are too low or the winds are too high, right? So, we're making that choice. So, that's the first thing right there where we can say that, yep, this is a good day. The winds, you, we need wind. Wind is important, right? We talked about that fire triangle and how oxygen is a key component of that. Um, if there was no wind, the fires would burn slowly and they would burn in whatever direction they chose, right? We want wind. Wind makes fire predictable, right? So we want winds anywhere between, you know, 8 to eight to 12, 8 to 15, something like that, right? It makes fire predictable. It makes our smoke predictable, right? Uh, humidity, anything over 50%, it's probably not going to burn well at all, especially if we're talking about a woodland. A prairie would burn at 50%. Anything below 25 starts to get a little bit intense, right? Anything in the teens is kind of a no-go, right? So we have this kind of sweet spot between you know, 30 and 40% is kind of an ideal uh, ideal humidity level, right? Uh, from the fuels, uh, if it rains today, you can burn a prairie tomorrow, 
right? If it rains today, you need at least three or four days of, bur- of drying for uh, a woodland to become uh, available for burning, right? So, uh, Cal, do you want to talk about one-hour fuels and 10-hour fuels and things like that? Absolutely. So, we utilize the speed that a fuel can reach the ambient air humidity as a descriptor for how long it would take for that fuel to then be able to burn. So for example, if you picture a clump of grass, it's thin, it's standing up in the air. There's not like big heavy sticks in there. There's no logs. It's just this clump of grass. The wind will pull and and move whatever ambient humidity through that clump of grass. So if, if it rained recently, the moisture in those grass leaves will easily evaporate into a drier breeze, for example. And so we consider grass to be a one-hour fuel or maybe even less. Um, it, it takes, generally speaking, about that amount of time for grass to reach the ambient humidity of the air surrounding it. Moving up from that, uh, twigs and, and small sticks that are you know, as big around as your thumb, that's about a 10-hour fuel. So we um, have calculated that it will take somewhere around 10 hours for that stick to reach the ambient air temperature. And so, and that goes all the way up to 10,000 hour fuels based on this, on, you know, a log, for example, um, that it might take 10,000 hours for that log to be 30% humidity. So you'd need that many hours of 30% humidity surrounding that log for it to then be 30% humidity. So then that can be disrupted, of course, 10,000 hours is a long time. And then that could, so, and it has to be surrounded by, say, like you said, 30% humidity. So yeah, so that can just go up and down based on. Yeah. So what that, what that means is that then you can use that to your advantage. So if it rained five days ago, I know it's not been 10,000 hours. And let's say we got three inches. I can assume that majority of the dead trees in an area that are bigger than, say, five inches or 10 inches are not going to burn if I then set fire to that area. And so that will be safer for us because then we don't have big smoldering dead trees in there three days later. Because one of the other flip sides of that is the bigger the fuel, the longer it takes to burn up. So that way we as fire managers can kind of plan, well, what things in this unit are actually going to burn if we burn under these conditions based on the type of fuel that they are. Very, very interesting. And, you know, one of the the observation that the students make when they say, wow, you know, the the prairie burned, but this green, lush lawn, you know, turf trail didn't didn't burn. And that's because, you know, we we think about the fuels all the time, right? So um, our leaf litter, highly flammable. Our prairie grass is highly flammable. The green turf lawn, it, it even on the lowest humidity days with a lot of wind, it's not going to burn, right? So we, we use those as what we would call fire breaks, right? So other fire, we're, we're fortunate here that we've got an extensive gravel road system. We have the Merrimack River running through the site. We've got uh, Brush Creek, which is a fairly you know sizable creek that runs through. But uh, kind of the other you know, as Cal kind of mentioned, the best fire break we have is an area that's already been burned. So let's say um, when th- at the start of fire season, nothing's been burned. Our whole 2,400 acres could potentially carry fire, right? So that first fire we do, everything downwind is flammable. But by the very end of the season, once we've already burned six or 700 acres, there might be times where everything downwind is already 
what we would say it's black. It's already been burned. All the fuels have been removed. And that makes burning, especially later in the season, very safe, very effective, very easy because there's literally nowhere it can go downwind. For example, if sparks and flaming leaves and stuff are lifted up in the breeze and carry across a fire line, if they land in an area that's already burned, there's nothing for them to burn there. Okay, so let's talk about what happens at the nature reserve before, during, and after a burn. So we talked a little bit about a little bit about before some of the conditions you look at and that sort of thing. But talk us through the, through other ways that you prepare for a burn day. Yes, preparation for a burn day starts in most cases weeks before, right? So in the last uh, couple of weeks, we've been doing a lot of mowing, right? So we're we do have gravel roads, but we actually knock down uh, a strip or two of of the grasses uh, between. Uh, the road and, and where the prairie starts, right? Just to give us that extra buffer. So we've started mowing in a lot of places. Um, we've been driving around and trying to find uh, dead trees that are on the edges of burn units. We, we we love dead trees. We want snag trees or good habitat trees. There's no doubt about it. Um, we would never cut down a dead snag that's, you know, far into a burn unit. But on the edge, that can be a, a hazard for us. It could catch on fire. It can fall over the line. It can catch on fire and throw embers over the line, right? So we need to uh, watch out for these snag trees. Um, it can injure a firefighter too. That's the other reason to be really careful of snags. They're definitely hazardous to, to people on the fire line. No, no doubt about that. Um, another thing we've been doing for the last couple of weeks is prepping all of our gear, right? We've got a lot of pumper units and water delivery systems, and we've been got all these trip torches and things along those lines. So we're prepping those things so that when the weather conditions and the fuel conditions are ready, our, our prime, we are ready to, to, to go. So that's one thing we've been doing. Um, so in the run up to a burn, you know, we, we don't know when we're going to do fire. You can't say, oh, are you going to be burning on November 17th? We have no way of knowing that, right? It's uh, maybe 48 hours in advance. We have a fairly good idea if uh, we're going to have a good, a good weather day. Um, 24 hours out, again, we, we're honing it in. We're thinking, yep, here's the unit we're going to do. The winds are going to be such and such that it makes this unit the right one to do. But it's really a, a morning of call, right? So we we look at, at the weather. We look at what the weather is going to do for the following days after the burn to make sure if there's any residual smoke, it goes where we want it to go. Um, and then and we're making that call hopefully by about 8 a.m. So at that point, uh, we're communicating to our staff. We're already starting to close trails. Well, we always let the uh, we coordinate with the Bulls Fire Protection District, our local uh, fire protection district, and we let them know that we're we're going to be doing fire. Um, and that those things are all happening kind of morning of. All right. So here we are. It's burn day. Everything's going great. All your equipment is working perfectly. Right. That's how it always happens. So talk us through burn day itself then. You're prepared, your crews are ready, go. Sure, I can talk through burn day. Uh, so day of, one of the first things that, uh, that we'll be doing before we even go out to the unit or necessarily even meet the crew um, is checking the weather again to make sure that, that everything is, is still looking good. Um, you know, sending emails, making sure that trails are closed, um, because one of the things, obviously, um, at the nature reserve is we have visitors and we want to make sure that those visitors are safe as we conduct our, our prescribed fires. So uh, we'll, we'll have the crew prepping the gear, like Mike's mentioned, um, contacting fire department and any relevant neighbors, making sure that the crew's all here and we can get volunteers to come help as well if we need them based on the size of the unit. 
And then we usually have a, a briefing before we start. So we'll meet up here usually by the shop to discuss what we're going to do, hand out maps, talk about safety, make sure everyone's got their gear um, and their crew assignments. Um, what, in other words, what they're going to do for uh, the operational period. And um, also kind of check with each other to make sure there's nothing that we missed. That That's generally uh, one of the reasons that we, we do those briefings is because we want to make sure that we're all on the same page. We all understand what the plan is for the day and that we're all comfortable with it. After that, we'll proceed to the unit and we'll usually assemble at a point at the unit that we've predetermined, but it's generally one that is at the opposite side of the wind direction, so so downwind. In other words, if you if you turn and face the wind, you will also be facing the majority of the unit. The reason for that is when we start that fire, um, we want the fire to move into the wind, which is the slowest direction that fire can move. So remember, we've already got fire breaks prepared. So if we ignite the fire right on the edge of our fire break, we expect that our fire break will, will hold and will not burn because we've already done all the preparation required to make it be a, a, a fire retardant zone. Okay, awesome. So you've, you've gathered your crews, you're all there and you're assessing the plan, you're talking it over, you're looking at the, the unit that you're getting ready to burn, and then what? Yeah, so the first thing we do uh, is, is we'll do what we call a, a test ignition, right? So that test ignition should tell us a couple of things. It should tell us, are the fuels behaving like we're expecting? Is this little bit of smoke that we're putting up behaving like we're expecting? And so we'll, we'll stand there. We'll have all, everyone will be standing around there. All of the pumps will be on. People have their hand tools in their hand. And we'll let it burn for a few minutes and say, okay, does everyone feel comfortable with this? Is this behaving like we anticipate? And we say, okay kind of green light, right? And then and we, we never let that test ignition grow outside of the scale at which we could we could uh, put it out if we ever made that decision like, yep, no, I don't like this. Let's 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 shut it down. We reserve that right to do so. Um, even though everyone's all dressed up and all the resources are deployed, we're still willing and able to, to make that determination if, if things aren't going according to the, the prescription that we have, right? So, I mean, typically we're doing what's called um, a ring ignition. We have two teams, and they are working um, in opposite directions, and we're doing a circular ignition, right? So we're uh, lighting that backing fire, kind of turning a corner, lighting flanking fires, and then turning a corner and and lighting lighting that head fire. Um, we're in constant communication. We, you know, we all have radios. We're all decked out in full uh, PPE and our personal protective gear. Um, everyone's got either a hand tool or a water line with them. Uh, we've got a you know a handful of vehicles, right? Three or four. Uh, you know, think uh, John Deere Gators or Kawasaki Mules. We've got a couple of different pickup trucks carrying, you know, hundreds of gallons of water at a time. Um, so a lot of, you know, if we're burning a, um, you know, let's say about a 200 acre woodland, we'll probably have 14 or so people on the fire line, a lot of staff, a handful of volunteers, maybe a partner or two from, uh, you know, the Missouri Department of Conservation or WashU's uh, Tyson Research Center, something along those lines. Um, if we're doing a small, you know, grass unit, I uh, think maybe 30, 40 acres. We might only have uh, eight or 10 people on the fire line, but still hundreds and hundreds of gallons of water and, and uh, you know, really nice, effective tools. Um, but really, you know, it, it takes us, it's that backing fire and the flank fires that take a while. Once you start lighting the head fire, things move really, really quickly. And we go from lighting the head fire, kind of 
say, nice work, everybody. And then we uh, really, we kind of get into those, what we would call mop up, right? That's kind of the next step after that head fire is lit. We're, we're patrolling the boundary. We're making sure everything looks good. We're making sure no, there's no fire outside of the unit. Um, and, you know, when we do a prairie, once that head fire goes through, the, the burn is over. It's I mean, it so is, fast. it is very quick and, and, and it's, I mean, it's literally over. We open up the trails almost immediately. Um, now when we burn woodlands, uh, the fires can just crawl and creep through the night, right? If it's a big unit that those flames might be 500 yards away from the road. There's no danger. Uh, we've looked at that weather two and three days out. We know which direction the, the smoke is going to move. Um, so sometimes we do have you know, residual flame on the landscape for a day or two, but it's very, very safe. It's very much internal. Um, and then the, the last step after we've, we've conducted some mop up, um, if, if needed, uh, usually prairie burns don't need it, but if, if you're in the woodland, then you need to, you know, check snags and make sure that there's nothing flaming up high that could throw sparks over the night across the fire line. Um, but yeah, so after mop up, we usually regroup. Um, and then similar to that briefing that I mentioned at the beginning, we do a debriefing modeled after a, a military, th um, action called the after action review. But, um, we, where we generally talk about, okay, what did we observe? How do we all feel? Did everything go the way we planned? And are there any suggestions for, for next steps or for when we do this unit again? Oh, the wind is always squirrely in this area. Maybe we should, mm -hmm. you know, have an extra pumper unit nearby there or something like that. Right. Or this part of the fire break wasn't prepped well enough. This is where we had issues, right? So that, that AAR, that after action review is, is really, really important for a couple of reasons. One is, um, you know, we're a, we're a team. Right. And we rely on one another and we need to have this kind of open sharing of ideas and, and feedback, either positive or negative. And really what we want to do is learn every time. Like we've been doing fire for a long time uh, here at the Nature Reserve, you know, 43 years of fire history. Uh, Calvin and I as individuals have been doing fire for, you know, I mean, together, you know, a couple decades. Right. Um, but we, we learn something on every single burn. Right. So um, we that is really one of the, the primary things that the AAR is for is to get everyone together to celebrate the important work we're doing, right? Um, to thank, especially our volunteers for being part of the action and then to, to share these ideas and to share lessons learned. All right, listeners, that's a wrap for part two of our three-part series. I hope you enjoyed hearing more about why and how we use fire as a tool for increasing the health of the natural world at the Nature Reserve. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, you are not going to want to miss part three because I recently had the privilege of joining our crews for a prescribed burn at the Nature Reserve. And I have to say, I have some really great field recordings from that day. So look for that episode and some final thoughts from Mike and Cal in just a couple of weeks. Until then, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that we believe spending time in nature is a great way to improve our physical, mental, and emotional well-being. The Nature Reserve offers really amazing public programs all winter long to help beat back those winter blues. You can find out more about those offerings by going online to our website or social media pages. Be sure to check out the episode show notes as well, because I'll also drop a link to our upcoming events page there. Thank you once again for joining us here at All for Nature. As I mentioned, I'll be back in just a couple of weeks with part three of Making Friends with Fire. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Until then, from all of us at Shaw Nature Reserve, 
Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the trail.